0: One of my favorite things about these residencies is how um, the connections that eventually show up, running through the uh, different seminars, kind of like a a current in a way, reoccurring things. Current, something you're going to hear me talk a lot about. I was particularly pleased that uh, uh, with Eric's, how well Eric's class uh, emphasized tension, which is something that you're going to hear me talk a lot about One of my goals of the, of the class is to help you increase tension in your dialogue. Mm. I thought we should start with function, what dialogue might do, what it's best used for, what it might accomplish in concert with the other craft elements. And then I left time at the end for uh, some discussion of fundamental, uh, basic fundamentals of form. Tags, dialect, uh, punctuation, and so on, Uh, which, at that point, I'll just turn the class over to you guys, you know, because I really don't know what people want to know about the basic fundamentals of form. They're all subject to opinions, as you probably know. So just, if you would, bear with me while um, we do the hard shit first. function, what we're supposed to be doing with dialogue. Uh, Any number of books Um, and websites will tell you that uh, dialogue and scenes, dialogue and scenes both have this in common. Uh, They'll tell you that they basically just do these three things, move the story increase tension, and build character. Take them in order, okay? Start with movement. Movement takes many forms. And here you can think of movement as development, if you prefer. And we're not just talking about uh, moving the plot line. There is that. But also emotional movement, characterization growth, voice elements, structural elements, and nuances to all those things. Uh, both dialogue and scenes are action that, in effect, stop time in a story, or at least slow it way down. So we, may, we need to make sure that our um, time-stopping interludes are moving the work forward, are developing the work. Mm-hmm. A traditional way of examining scenes is to ask, what has changed? At any given point in a story, beginning, middle, end, the conditions are a certain way, right? Characters enter, talk, and exit. What has changed at that point? The same is true of dialogue within scenes. If you decide you're at a high point that demands character interaction, a pivotal moment that requires actual speech in order to further the story, in order to move the story. Note the conditions at that point. Write them down if you have to. When the characters stop talking, ask what has changed. Write that down if you have to. If you cannot articulate this change, if you don't see a change, or if the change isn't much, you need to write different dialogue. So what constitutes a high point that demands character interaction? How do we know when to use dialogue, when to break from exposition into scene? As usual, it was Aristotle, you have to have him in all classes, (laughs) who uh, gave us the insight to this. He said, uh, writers of dramatic dialogue have two audiences to juggle. And you know this in a different way. Most of us have heard the adage that characters in stories uh, speak to each other. They don't speak to the reader, right? A mistake young writers uh, make is trying to tell the story through the conversation of the characters. Gosh, honey, it's tax time, and I've let my addiction to Oxycondin distract me from my... (laughs) fiscal obligations to the government you're right Ralph and now it's time for me to file for divorce right most of you teach undergrads. you hear this kind of thing Uh, ah real-life conversations don't take place for an audience at least not usually Uh, even in moments of tension and argument say between people, we really have to summarize our given position on anything. Characters are in a story, right? Readers are elsewhere. They're not the same, nor do they need the same information. As Aristotle pointed out, a line of dialogue has two simultaneous meanings or sources of information. Two purposes, you could say. One for the characters and one for the reader. So a high point, in any story is generally when something urgent needs to be conveyed that involves both the characters and the reader, but does not violate uh, the fundamental rule of simply providing information. Characters speak from life, their life. They don't speak from any story. They, your characters don't know they're in a storm. <laughs> characters don't care about resolution or plot movement. They don't speak to resolve things. Only the writer is concerned with closing down the story. Characters don't know it's coming to an end, the poor people. And the reader is concerned with believing it, engaging in it, right? So uh, a high point is an urgent moment when characters feel compelled to speak, or yell, or scream, or stamp their feet and throw things. When do you let them speak? When you can't stop them when they have to speak to get at whatever it is they want or think they want. And that leads us to the primary quality of good dialogue, a vital aspect of when to use it. I'm speaking, of course, of tension. And tension, as you know, never exists without that shadowy figure always lurking nearby. Desire, right? Want. WANTS CREATE um, DESIRE. YOU KNOW, I'M TRYING TO THINK OF THIS GREAT LINE THAT I LEARNED WHEN I WAS uh, RESEARCHING THE CLASS, DESIRE MOVES... DIALOGUE MOVES IN THE DIRECTION OF DESIRE, THAT'S WHAT IT WAS. I should have wrote it down, I didn't. Dialogue moves in the direction of desire. Meaning, I think, I mean, you can take what meaning. Uh, To me it means dialogue grows out of the need to speak. Desire, or uh, dialogue grows out of want. If there isn't any want, well, maybe people shouldn't be talking. There is no good dialogue without movement and no movement without desire and desire, of course, as we already said, produces tension. Uh, this is another mis- common mistake young Maredius make is to confuse uh, tension with physical conflict. Tension in dialogue is more like energy. It's more like that current that I already brought up. Uh, something is charged, a current is running through the speech. Think of um, I'm fully wired, as you can see. Uh, Obligatory collared shirt and
1: all.
0: (laughs) Well, we're on the freeway, let's say, right? Trying to pass semi-trucks. Right, You're in the passing lane, everyone's booking along at 80 miles an hour, car's right on your ass. The tension exists in the space between the vehicles, Mm. in that roaring space. Uh, You keep your cool, you move on. A little bobble, weakness, panic, miscalculation, everything's redefined in a deadly way, right? That's kind of the energy you're looking for between your lines. In stories, there is no place for uh, talk without tension. Uh, The bullshit we engage in daily, right here, on the stairwell, in hallways, store clerks, in elevators. Hi, hi, nice day, yeah. (laughs) It's neutral, right? There is, nobody wants anything. Mm -hmm. Nobody cares. There's no tension. There's no movement. Crank it up just a notch. Hi. Hi. Do you know the time? No. What just happened? Hi. Hi. Do you know the time? No. A question, by definition, is an imposition. A desire, correct? To either know the time or further this person in conversation. The abrupt answer, no. sets a tone, and it doesn't allow for much response. It also raises a question of of its own. Does the person really not know the time or do they just want to discourage further conversation? Mm -hmm. My point is neutral conversation, banter about the weather, superficial greetings, things we engage in daily don't belong in stories, even if you're trying to create the banal effects of our um, the mundanity of our everyday lives, there are probably better ways to do it than trying uh, <sighs> trying to bore people to the point where they can go to read books in the first place. <laughs> right? That's what drives people to books because our lives aren't really um, living up to our expectations. Ah. Uh, you need to think, I think we need to think of dialogue as combat. I know it's, it's maybe over the top, you may be thinking it's brutal, and then there's a time for subtlety, and we'll get to that we'll, when we look at the examples. But I can't overemphasize um, uh, that desire spawns tension, and tension moves stories. Without the tension, I don't think you're going anywhere. And this brings us to the handout, I think. Uh, how do we create this tension? Oh, you just heard some ways from, um, from Eric. Uh, I got a little list. It's not exhaustive, but there's more, of course. Questions, interruptions, silences, echoing, repetition, reversals, shifts in tone and points, as with no. See, that that no changed the whole course of the exchange. Uh, idioms and details are probably both better addressed. Uh, they're particular to situations, so we'll keep an eye out for those in the examples that follow.
2: Hmm. What do you mean by reversals? Sorry.
0: Huh? What do you mean by reversals? Reversal. Ah. Uh. I'm trying to think of which example it's best shown in. These things are going to all show up in our examples.
1: Well,
0: let's use the no from, um, I think I can do it this way. One way that things reverse is when there is a certain intention to the dialogue as when somebody says, do you know the time, expecting that you will either, expecting not um, to be shut down with an abrupt no, you know, that sort of, as I said, it didn't allow for much response. So it's, it kind of reverses the intention of the um, original speaker. You know, there's other ways that things reverse too. And I think they're better shown in examples. I'm leaning towards the Sam Shepard piece for reversal dialogue between couples, but also the other um, dialogue between couples um, and who will run the frog factory. But just keep an ear out. and and. Kind of use this, um, as we go through these examples on the handout, use this as kind of a checklist where you recognize these things? And I'll point them out too as we uh, go along. Can we read this uh, opening from the fan? And I already, uh, Larry graciously has agreed to be the DJ because I already asked him, did anyone ever call into a radio show? Not you. <laughs> <laughs> I need you for something else I already have in
3: Whatever you say, whatever you say.
0: Phil, you're way back there, but are you volunteering to be the caller in here? His, Gil. his name is Gil. Okay, I would really like you to read the dead air part. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. There's a few of them, but they're crucial. You. you know what dead air is? Yeah. It's on the radio, okay. <laughs> so, so Dead air. Whenever you're ready.
4: Alright, alright. Who's next? Gil on the car phone. What's shaking, Gil? <laughs> dead air. <laughs> Speak, Gil. Is this. Go on. Hello? You're on the DLC. Am I on? Not for long, Gil. The way we're going. <laughs> this is supposed to be entertainment.
1: Dead air.
4: <laughs> Got a question or a comment for us, Gil? First time caller. Fantabulous. What's on your mind? I- I'm a little nervous. What's there to be nervous about? Just three million pairs of ears out there hanging on to your every word. <laughs> What's the topic? The socks. The socks! I like the way you say that. How do I say it? Like, what else could it be? Dead air. What what about the socks, Gil? Just that I'm psyched, Bernie. Bernie's off today, this is going
5: <laughs>
4: Everybody gets psyched in the spring. That's a given in this game, like ball, or mustard. This is different. How? Dead air. <laughs> Gil? I've been waiting a long time. For what? This year. What's special about it? It's their year. Why it's so tentative? Tentative? Just pulling your leg. The way you sound, so sure. Like it's lead pipe <laughs> cinch. Like it's a lead pipe cinch. The mark of a true blue fan.
3: Dead air.
4: Gail? Yeah. The biggest odds are, what are they, Fred? Fred in the control room there. Doing something repulsive with a pastrami on 10 to 1 on the socks and the pennant. 20? What is it? 25 to 1 on the whole shebang. Just to give us some on this, Gil, what would you wager at those odds if you were a wagering man? Everything I owe. Oh? Hey, I like this guy. He's got a sense of humor after all. But, uh, Gil, you're setting yourself up for a season of delusion, my friend. Delusion? Yeah, I like, delusion? um... I know what disillusion means. Do you? Then you must... They went down to the wire last year, didn't they? Ancient history,
0: Gil. Oh, for Christ's sake. Can't say that on there, Gil. I can cut you off by pressing the button right here. <laughs> it runs on and on for a number of more pages. It's the opening of the novel. <laughs> so it's, 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 it's risky what he's doing. But um, the tension here, I think, you'll agree, is evident immediately the DJ's impatience and authority versus the uh, unknown caller's tentative nervousness. The topic of conversation really doesn't matter. One character is being used as a foil for the other. That's why it's called directed dialogue. Mm. You can use this to set up tensions that will play out in a story. The fan is about Gill's obsessive relationship with the stocks. When he says, I've been waiting a long time, it resonates forward to the story ahead. and That's movement, right? Change isn't always um, evident when... Um, when movement happens, you know that from real life. We recognize most of our changes after um, the events occur, correct? If you've seen the Fisher King movie, you've probably seen an ex, it's the same thing. You know the Fisher King, uh, who was that? Jeff Bridges uh, as DJ Lucas, uh, abusing caller uh, Edwin, I think, who subsequently committed murder. and. Um, it spawned the whole sad tale ahead. You don't know that movie, The Fisher King? Man, you guys ought to watch that movie. It's really good. Well, huh? In Matt's class, there was an instance of directed dialogue, too. And I'm not sure if I can remember. Was it Terry Gross, who was attempt, trying to be manipulated by an interviewer? She, she wanted to steer him in a certain uh, Interview is often. Uh, attempt to direct their, uh, their subjects. Uh, teachers, what, this is what we do. Uh, t- trying to keep the conversation going the way we want, ask the appropriate questions and get the right answers out of uh, people, cops, couples, parents and kids. There's uh, so many instances um, where your characters can, um, where you can use directed dialogue to increase tension. The key thing here there's tension when I can't find my water. <laughs> oh. I'm unusually thirsty this morning. Huh? I don't know why. Maybe you prefer uh, something more subtle. Hey, page 11 of Ironweed. Is that next? Yeah. Okay, uh, well, this is William Kennedy's nod- uh, novel. Uh, Two characters, Rudy and Francis, wandering in a graveyard. There's seven deadly sins, Rudy said. Deadly? What do you mean deadly, Francis said. I mean daily, Rudy said, every day. (laughs) There's only one sin as far as I'm concerned, Francis said. There's prejudice? Oh, yeah, prejudice, yeah. There's envy, envy, yeah, yeah, that's one. There's lust, lust, right, I always like that one. (laughs) Cowardness? I don't know what you mean. That word, I don't know. Cowardness? I don't know the coward word. What are you saying about coward? A coward, he'll cower up. You know what a coward is, he'll run. No, that word, I don't know. Francis is no coward. He'll fight anybody. Listen, you know what I like? What do you like? Honesty, Francis said. That's another one. (laughs) (laughs) On the surface. (laughs) There would appear to be a little tension here even with Francis disliking cowardness the conversation sounds like aimless rambling and don't forget we're on page 11. readers are just meeting these men and the scene does serve to introduce aspects of their personality so the dialogue is building character like everything in writing it um dialogue should be doing more than one thing at a time but the novel is the story of Francis Phelan, an ex baseball player who fled his home 20 years ago after accidentally killing his infant son while drunk. You know those Albany books by Kennedy? Those have kind of fallen out of the uh, conversation, but they're all fantastic. Ironweed, right? And there's two other ones which I can't remember. Anyway, uh, Francis has been a wandering hobo ever since he did that because he ran off. And now, at the beginning of this novel, he has returned to his native, Al- his native Albany uh, and the family he left behind. None of this is known to the reader on page 11. As you would expect, Francis is nervous about his reception back home, and he's touchy on the subject of courage and cowardness because he ran away. Rudy knows the whole story, and he's aware of Francis, uh, that Francis is apprehensive about r- revisiting his past. Ruby, Rudy is probing that fear here. Notice how he says cowardice twice in its own paragraph, right, no tag. Knowing the story, like I just summarized it for you, it's easy to see the significance of this conversation. Tension doesn't dominate the conversation the way it does uh, in the previous example, but tension pervades the scene. Mm -hmm. The writer, this is the important part, Kennedy is very conscious of this tension conscious of what his characters know and what his reader doesn't know. Kennedy is juggling both his audiences here. He's been reading as Aristotle, apparently. <laughs> the important letter, lesson for us is to recognize that there's multiple meetings at play here in this dialogue. The writer is allowing the conversation to be ripe with the themes of the novel while not directing the themes in any obvious way. He's not telling us the story. By allowing the characters to simply speak the way they might in a rather casual, uh, wandering way, uh, the themes are every bit as present on the page as they were in the previous example, just quieter. Kennedy is leading us in a certain direction. And this little conversation begins along Road to redemption for uh, Francis, and that's the story of the novel. Possibly you prefer misdirection. There is that too, right? Another way to increase tension and movement, misdirected dialogue allows randomness to raise tension levels. This is what we might call couples dialogue, familiar to us all, I'm sure. Who will run the frog hospital? Lori Lori Moore. This is a married couple in bed. The wife speaks first. Anybody? Mm-hmm. Let it go there. Yeah. The whole thing? Yeah. Okay. She's the narrator. It's the first person narrator novel. It sounds like, well, go ahead, read.
2: I'm feeling a little empty today. How about you? You should get a puppy, essentially. (laughs) A puppy? Yeah, it's not like a cat. A puppy you can take for walks around the neighborhood, and people will stop and smile and say, ooh, look, what's wrong with your puppy? (laughs) What's wrong with my puppy? Worms, I think. I don't know. You should have taken him to the vet weeks ago. You are so mean. I'm sorry I'm not what you bargained for, Daniel murmurs. Why stop and think about this? Well, I'm not what you bargained for either, so we're even. No, he says faintly. You are. You're what I bargained for. But then he has fallen over the cliff of sleep
0: and is snoring. (laughs) The tension here, resulting in possible change, is surely cumulative because tension of uh, mounting attrition because there are a couple conversations like this have happened before, taking place over, well, many conversations and taking place over time, right? But we get a sense of it in this brief uh, exchange when one character is being direct, the other one evades and um, chides. There is an ironic intimacy, but given the underlying tension, the couple, like all couples, speaks a sort of code where all statements are loaded with meaning beyond um, what is being said, as if building to a head. Misdirected dialogue is a type that, um, it's popular, is what it is. Recently, well, I, I don't know in contemporary literature, let's just put it that way. Um, and it's it's popular because we can take um, full advantage of the rhythms and cadences of language. It can be playful and fun, which is good. But let's face it, as writers, we often like to hear ourselves being witty and smart and literary and so mm-hmm. forth. And this type of dialogue can get insufferable fast. Um, at its worst, it's pretentious and trendy. You'll also notice that this last bit of dialogue has brought us more into the land of narration. Dialogue interrupted and interpreted by a narrator. This, of course, is what we do most of the time. Uh, And it is this kind of narrative intrusion and manipulation by the writer that really gives our isolated conversation moments, our high points, meaning and heart. But it also puts demands on us that we don't have when two people are talking in isolation. For instance, let's try this bit from Rich in Love. Josephine Humphreys, first person narrator, protagonist, 16 year old Lucille Odom, who has recently experienced the breakup of her parents' marriage and the dissolution of her family. Did I put these notes on the handout? Yeah, I did. <laughs> Mostly for my own. Uh, The interesting thing is many of the dialogues that Lucio is involved in in this novel go on for pages, which is strange, and are often interrupted by memories and intruding scenes, and that's the case here, where we find her at the country club lunch with her boyfriend, uh, Wayne, and his father, a doctor who's aggravated about money at the moment. Dad speaks first. Somebody read this for me. (laughs) Okay, yeah, go for it. This is a good one for you.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And I want you to guess how much I have to pay for liability insurance. Guess. No, I couldn't begin to. No, just take a wild guess. What do you think I have to cough up? I don't know. Wayne was stubborn. I knew he wouldn't guess. Take a guess, son, Dr. Frobiness (laughs) insisted. A million dollars, I said. (laughs) No, little lady, not quite that much. No, I'm putting up $21,000 a year for insurance. He pronounced the first syllable of thousand with a wide open mouth and made his eyes big. Holy smoke, I said to be polite. In truth, I thought that was a pretty good bargain. Suppose he botched a liposuction or misaligned an implant. If I were the insurance company, I would not have insured Dr. Probinus for any (laughs) (laughs) amount. Excuse me, I said. I wanted seconds before they wheeled the roast beef away. It was already three o'clock, and the steamboat round was carved down the middle like a saddle. The waiter in charge of slicing meat was standing over by the aquarium with two other waiters. I waited politely by the meat, plate in hand, but they were engaged in an argument, and a partially melted seahorse made of ice stood (laughs) between me and them. One said, Mater D said, get that mother out. Another said, get him out how? I don't know, but get him out. Shit, man, I ain't reaching my hand in there. It's crabs in there. He ain't dead yet, anyhow. Sure he is. Nah, he ain't. His gills is opening and closing. That's his breathing. Any fish that's upside down is dead in my book. So get him out fast before a member sees him. Get him out, James. Go for it, James. All right, James. James doesn't. James <laughs> yeah. is the
0: winner. Uh, she, uh, Humphreys, the writer, often lets her narrator tune out conversations that she's involved in, as we saw her do um, at the beginning of this, when she speculates about Dr. Forbinus and his insurance company. Mm. Then she excuses herself, right? And the implication being that the conversation between father and son goes on. And she enters a whole different world. Mm. Sometimes, as narrator, she does this via her memory, jumping around in time, but here, it says, um, as you saw, eavesdropper on three waiters engaged in their own problems. And through her, we enter a completely different dialogue. Totally unexpected, I think. And also a good example, by the way, of untagged dialogue, which we, we can talk about at the end. Also, in much of Bliss is untagged dialogue. Put it to the end of, uh, of the class when we get to the nuts and bolts. But by the time, um, if you read this novel, you'll see by the time that uh, Lucille returns to the table, a page and a half has gone by. And the father and son are still at conversation as if no time has passed. This is a particularly good trick. In this way, the author gets a lot of movement out of the digressions that the narrator is wildly prone to. And the reader gets a lot of insight to Lucille on that. The alternative can be very clumsy. She does it so gracefully, Humphreys. She's another one that's kind of fallen off the map. I don't know, these were 1985 novels. I think she, there was a couple of them. Just making any sense so far? Yeah. Because so far we focused mostly on two things that I think are most critical. Uh, to good dialogue. Uh, But I hope um, that you're seeing in each case, in each one of these examples, um, how the dialogue has developed the characters. Yeah? You're seeing this? When people speak, they give away their personality. The writer doesn't have to say the radio DJ is abusive. Or that France feeling, is feeling guilt-ridden. Or that Lucille Odom thinks little of her boyfriend's father. We hear those things. And the characters come to life. Their voices create the people they are. Notice how fast this happens in the opening scene from Thelma and Louise. I hope you know about Thelma and Louise. You know, uh, this is... a. Uh, Well, I want you to see how quickly we get a sense of their, the people and the personalities, right? What's the matter? You want to talk about Thelma and Louise? No, no, I
2: thought you were asking for people to read
0: No, I want to look at how fast okay. the personalities of the two characters emerge. Mm. I took most of the screenplay notes off so you're not distracted, but if you know the film, you know she's Louise's... Uh, In her greasy spoon restaurant, waitress uniform. She's on the payphone at her greasy spoon job. Okay, that's the opening shot in the film. Reader knows nothing. Okay? I hope you're packed, little housewife, because we're out of here tonight. Well, wait now. I still have to ask Daryl if I can go. You mean you haven't asked him yet? But Christ's sake, Stoma, is he your husband or your father? It's just two days, for God's sake, tell I don't be a child. Just tell him you're going with me for crying out loud. Tell him I'm having a nervous breakdown. He already thinks you're out of your mind, Louise. I don't think that'll carry much weight with Daryl. Are you at work? No, I'm calling from the Playboy mansion. I'll, I'll call you right back. This thing takes this is less than thirty seconds on the screen. And and, and think of you know, what do you know about the people? You know, Louise, obviously absurdive, brash, impatient, right? Single maybe, possibly for good reason. <laughs> Thelma, tentative, submissive to her husband, Naive, a child, Louise calls her. All these qualities are born out in the storm. And it happened in less than 30 seconds. So I think at this point, if you think about it, and maybe if you look closer later, you'll see that we are seeing uh, many of the things on um, that original list at the beginning of your um, handout. Questions, interruptions, silences, echoing, repetition, reversal, shifts in tone and place, all aspects of manipulating, manipulating rather, conversations to instill energy, tension, into these speakers and thereby move the story along in a practical way when you're sitting at your desk how do you do it when analyzing your dialogue you know, first draft dialogue, you're right, it, it is what it is, right? But when analyzing your dialogue, first you might ask, what is the desire in the conversation? That's where we started. What is the want? Who wants what? If nobody wants anything, you're going nowhere. What has to change? Maybe question two. At the end of the talk, or what has changed? Your characters talk, you're looking at the scene, maybe it's a half of well, discussion takes up half a page, or maybe... Um, less, or more, but ask yourself, what has changed at that point, yeah. Uh, So the practice then of dialogue is the same as the practice of of writing um, anything that you're working on, right? You build it up, you cut it down. You build it up, you cut it down. If your dialogue stalls back, or stalls out, and this brings me back, I think, to John's Ending class, you know, uh, I love ending classes, by the way. I don't know if I told you that. That, uh, That's what I did um, uh, for my uh, MFA thesis when I was in school. Endings. I couldn't end shit, you know. (laughs) The endings all sucked. (laughs) So I I tried to learn about it. And, and of course, I'm still learning about it. And one of the wonderful things um, that John brought up and one of the main things, I think, about endings and also about your dialogue, if it stalls out, you're going on, you've you got a half a page of dialogue, you got two pages of dialogue, don't write more. The problem isn't down the road where you haven't written anything yet. It's back somewhere. You know, that's what he taught you about endings. If your ending sucks, look back. You know, if your dialogue seems to be going nowhere, possibly you started in the wrong place. Possibly you left a gap where things kind of slipped off the page. And I urge you um, to look back and also cut and compress more than anything else. People talk too much. People talk too much. Try at all costs to make your character say as little as possible and have that little dense with meaning and
5: fused
0: with current. Right? Something known to the reader from exposition or description. Don't put that in dialogue. Unless there's some effect that you're trying to get. Right? Cut it out. And don't forget what we all know from real life. Silences in conversation often scream. Right? Mm. Now, one of the great wisdoms that I heard from um, that great 20th century philosopher and part-time actor, Marlon Miranda, Mm. (laughs) Maybe you heard of him. He once said, presumably to a a younger actor who was trying a little bit too hard, he said, listen, just because they say action doesn't mean you have to do anything. (laughs) Words to live by, you know. Especially if you work out of school. (laughs) Just because they say action doesn't mean you have to do shit. You know, the reason we scorn bad TV, sitcoms, you know, if you like those, that's great, but um, any sitcom, any night, what, those 30-minute things? Even the great, you know, iconic ones like Steinfeld, the people never shut up. Where does that happen in real life? It doesn't. We could do a whole class on compression, the art of saying as little as possible, Take a look at the effects of uh, silence in Chekhov's famous story, Lady with the Pet Dog. Mm. You probably know these two. They've been uh, ran into each other, vacationing away from their spouses. They've been flirting, sort of 19th century Russian style, but they haven't yet actually uh, committed to cheating until this scene. Who wants to read Chekhov? Doug, read this.
6: The festive crowd began to disperse. It was too dark to see people's faces. The wind had completely dropped, but Gurov and Anna still stood as though waiting to see someone else come from the steamer. Hmm. Anna was silent now, and sniffed the flowers without looking at Gurov. The weather is better this evening, he said. Where shall we go now? Shall we drive somewhere? She made no answer. Then he looked at her intently, and all at once Put his arm around her and kissed her on the lips and breathed in the moisture and the fragrance of the flowers. And he immediately looked round him, anxiously wondering whether anyone had seen them. Let us go to your hotel, he said softly. <laughs> <We> both
0: walked. <laughs> I know. It's a, I love how civilized they are. <laughs> how hard he's trying, but. And she. I, she doesn't say a thing. Notice how Chekhov emphasizes her silence in its own paragraph, but she doesn't open her mouth. Right? Why not? What are the possibilities? She doesn't care what they do? She's too much of a lady to say what she wants? She wants him to make the suggestion or the commitment? She's embarrassed. Right? There's any number of things. But then in the end, they both walked on. <laughs> <laughs> Another type of silence, this is a complicated one, it's a different effect, and this is hard to do, Is from Cheever's Goodbye, My Brother. This is a, a long one, but it's, we got to do it, because this is, as like that. it's difficult to do, you'll see, and it's, it's unusual, uh, although it's typical of Cheever. The youngest son here in this long piece has been a total bummer all summer, Uh, at a rare family gathering. He's upset his mother severely this morning, criticizing and complaining about the expense of owning the family's summer home, which was the pride and joy of the father who built it by hand and recently died, okay? I need some good readers for this. Yeah, go late in the morning.
5: Late in the morning when I came up from the tennis court alone, I saw Lawrence on the terrace, prying up a shingle from the wall with his jackknife. What's the matter, Lawrence? I said. Termites? He pointed out to me at the base of each row of shingles a faint blue line of carpenter's chalk. This house is about 22 years old, he said. These shingles are about 200 <coughs> years old. Dad must have bought shingles from all the farms around here when he built the place to make it look venerable. You can still see the carpenter's chalk put down when these antiques were nailed into the place. It was true about the shingles, although I had forgotten them. When the house was built, our father, his architect, they ordered a couple of lightning and raising I didn't follow Lawrence's reasons for thinking that this was scandalous. And look at these doors, Lawrence said. Look at these doors and window frames. I followed him over to a big Dutch door that opened onto the terrace and looked at it. It was a relatively new door, but someone had worked hard to conceal its wounds. It. The surface had been deeply scored with some metal implement, and white paint had rubbed into the incisions to imitate Brian, Lichen, and weather rock. Imagine spending thousands of dollars to make a South House look like a wreck, Lawrence said. Imagine the frame of mind this implies. Imagine wanting to live in so much in the past that you'll pay man carpenter's wages to disfigure your front door. Then <laughs> I remember Lawrence's sensitivity to time and his sentiments and opinions about our feelings for the past. I've heard him say years ago that we and our friends and our part of the nation, finding ourselves unable to cope with the problems of the present, have, like a wretched adult, turned back to what we supposed was a happier and simpler time and that our taste for reconstruction and candlelight was a measure of its irremediable failure. The faint blue line of chalk had reminded me of these ideas. The scarified door had reinforced them, and now clue after clue presented itself to me. The stern light of the door, the bulk of the chimney, the width of the floorboards, and the pieces set into them that resembled pegs. While Lawrence was lecturing me on these frailties, the others came up from the court. Mm -hmm. As soon as Mother saw Lawrence, she responded, and I saw that there was little hope of any rapport between the matriarch and the changeling. Mm -hmm. She took Chaddy's arm. Let's go swimming and have martinis on the beach, she said. Let's have a fabulous
1: morning.
0: Mm -hmm. Keep it simple. Lawrence is clearly benting here, correct? And his quiet narrator brother knows there's no point in talking to him. He doesn't say shit this whole This whole piece, right? And there's a lot more to it. I just, you know, tried to keep it under uh, a certain length. It's clear that Lawrence wouldn't listen anyway, and his brother knows that. But for our purposes, what we're interested in is what Cheever is doing. Cheever uses that aspect of their personalities that Lawrence is venting and his brother knows there's no point in talking uh, to allow the narrator to raise the issue of past and present, which the reader needs to know and which is at the heart of this entire um, story, really, and the overall tension in the family story. Um, this is a demonstration of... Uh, controlling dramatic gesture that's what it's a demonstration of by the writer you know dramatic gesture is um we're taught early on um that dialogue isn't just words correct it's looks and movements throat clearings eyes rolling but here there's none of that the narrative makes none of those movements like we might expect Cheever seems to have used the narrator's narrator's silence to further demonstrate the alienation presented by Lawrence's attitude and the split between him and the rest of the family who love this old house and who um, relish it and want to keep it, which is the whole story. Dramatic gestures are, of course, crucial, right? But if used used correctly, but... uh, they can often become cliched. Those are the, uh, the you that teach um, undergrad. You see this all the time. A woman dumps her boyfriends and then grinds her cigarette out with the heel of her shoe. You know, mm-hmm. Eyes are sh- of the bad guy are shifty in movies all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, The ending of Carver's story, A Small Good Thing, which most of you may know. You know, everyone wants to love Carver's stories, especially A Small Good Thing, because it seems so um, nice. But the ending of that story, go back and look at it if you can't remember, it's ridiculously mauled and improbable, unlikely. It's where the baker uh, breaks the bread with the couple who's lost their son. <laughs> I love Carver, but, you know, he got sentimental in his once he got free of Lish a little bit.
1: <laughs>
0: he did. Do you remember the, the original ending of that story? The bath?
6: Because, right, we're, we're, that's a way better ending, isn't it?
0: Well, it's more, it's more realistic. Most people would prefer a small good thing to the bath by See, far, I, because I, the bath is so damn cold. And
6: And I, I, I'm the other way around. I like I like. <coughs> I
0: don't. I like the ending I, of the
6: bath uh, way better than the ending of small good.
0: thing. Yeah, I do too. It's
6: it's it's way less tidy, but it's. Try
0: selling that to your undergrads.
6: Oh no, you can't. <laughs> they ain't gonna buy it.
0: I've brought the bath and the small good thing into class and read the both and. You know, they give him the information, this was, uh, the bath was actually the original version. Hmm. Cut to Lish's, um, uh, uh, once Carver became Carver and got control of himself a little bit, he turned it into a small good thing. Actually, he must have wrote a small good thing first, and then I think that's the story, and then Lish took his red pen and just slashed the shit out of it, and we ended up with the bath. I think that's how it went, right? Uh, but then we uh, got the small good thing back. I don't know, you know, when I was an undergrad I loved a small good thing. And I hated the bad. But you know, I, I don't, I look... Uh, I guess you become, you know, more attached to what's realistic, at least in my case. and. And and any hint of sentimentality irks me a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Or improv, not even sentimentality. I can live with sentimentality, but improbability, Mm. the likelihood of that ending occurring in the world, very small. Uh, So, you know, speaking of dramatic gestures, the one that stands out probably, anyone seen Midnight Cowboy? Is there a dramatic gesture that stands? What is it? I'm walking here, right?
3: And you know that wasn't scripted. That was not a part of the script. Is that and right? Filming and Dustin Hoffman was walking across the street, and this cab just starts coming at him. He's like, "Hey, I'm walking here." One of the most classic lines of all time. Improv.
0: That I believe. <laughs> That's a good dramatic gesture, right? Ah, uh, so where are we? Oh, Bliss. Let's go there. No. The functions of dialogue, why did I pick the list? I could have picked anything I wanted an old story that um, showed that the functions of dialogue haven't changed in a hundred years. This is a hundred year old story. We see misdirection, don't we? Go back and look at it again, check and follow your list. Misdirection, interruption, echoing, repetition, reversal, shifts in tone and place, denial, deception. She's got them all in there. <laughs> The idioms, of course, and the details of the day are foreign to us, they're dated, but that's my point. The aspects of dialogue remain consistent with any you might write today. The characters' voices are distinct to the point where tags are seldom needed once the characters are introduced. The pace of dialogue is vibrant all the way through. It pulls us along through the story, that's movement. Where A story where we know from the start, if you're um, an astute reader, that Ballissa's is, is bullshit from the get-go, and she's likely to come to a, a sad end, yeah? I don't know why, I, I uh, what do we I included it, I, just the ending, I wanted to include something, and. This is the part, of course, I, I'm, I'm not even sure we need to read this. You guys probably, you know, we read the story. Um, I was just trying to, to show how well she characterized um, her people to the point where I don't know that there's a tag in this whole little bit that I, that I included on the handout. You don't need them because her, the personalities of her people by that point in the story, this is the end, right, are so dis- so clearly etched in our minds. Let's move forward. If we want to talk um, about fundamental forms, we're going to have to move a little quicker than this. The only other reading we had was Sam Sh- Shepard's uh, story. Uh, prominent playwright. It's no surprise he knows how to write dialogue. Uh, he does here what a lot of great dialogue writers do. He creates a um, very tight recursive connection. Um, like that current that I was talking about that pulls us along, allowing for no holes or gaps that the reader can slip away. And the reason I totally messed up your um, oh, the piece that's on the handout is because I wanted um, I started with uh, you know the lines I wanted just you to see how good dialogue looks like this. Mm. Dun, 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 right? Amazing, amazing, you, me, whatever. If you look back, it's a, um. each line of dialogue is pretty much drawn just directly from the line before. it. If you look at a lot of film scripts, screenplays, <laughs> they all do this, you know, and I suppose, Why? Because this is good dialogue. Because it doesn't let the reader um, slip through a hole where all of a sudden uh, the subject changes or the connection. You know, dialogue is a, um, what do you call it, action-reaction, right? That's the way it's supposed to work. You know, sometimes at parties or whatever, people are just standing around waiting for their turn to talk because they want to get their two cents in. Well, but that's not good dialogue. (laughs) Good dialogue is action, reaction. You respond exactly to uh, what the person said, like they're doing here. The parathetical parts, you can ignore those or take them for what they're worth. I just started scribbling uh, what was not, what was left unsaid, kind of the effect of the line in the margin of my copy. And then I decided, okay, I'll just type them out and put them on there. Maybe somebody will get something out of it. But the important part is the line of connection. Amazing, amazing, amazed, I am what? What she was talking about. Amazed, I feel, I wonder, the real me. And all of that doesn't stop until about the middle where the change in direction um, is the effect that he wanted here, I think. He wanted um, this conversation to go absolutely nowhere, which it does. And it starts when um, he says in the middle, no, I mean, I don't ordinarily think of myself as sullen, bad-tempered kind of guy. And she takes exception because she didn't say sullen. I didn't say sullen. See, she's starting this changes the direction this is movement is what this is otherwise they would just be bantering on down to the end of the page right well you don't know what to say to that you don't usually go out of your way to be chatty let's put it that way chatty now he calls her up, right he's the one who takes exception this is movement it's getting to him them to a place where they didn't really, uh, they didn't know where they were going anyway. By the end of this uh, conversation, you see uh, 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 my note there, the original conversation is totally lost. The lack of communication is ironic given the nature of her initial observation. Hmm. See that's, it moved. Makes sense?
2: Hmm. So Richard, you ask what changes here? What changes here?
0: This is a good time to ask questions. We're at the point, I think, where you guys need to ask me stuff like, when do I say retorted? You know? <laughs> well, well,
1: well, you would like to go on to that.
2: But in terms of, you said ask what's changed. So what's changed here? Is it what I see by the end is that she, um, the fact that she and he are angry at each other or disconnected comes out? to the four, She turns away from it. Does that count as a kind of change
0: that? You, you might be right, ahead? although I will question her intentions in the first place. Oh, okay. You know, he clearly takes uh, this drug so that he can relax on planes. The way she brings it up, I don't know. It, it could be um, neutral. I'd have to look at that in the context of the story, which I can't remember the line that comes right before this. You guys might know this better than me because I hope you read the whole thing. But when she says, it's just amazing how friendly you become when you're on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> this just doesn't sound that positive. They're a married couple. They've been together yeah. for years. There is nothing before that. That's
2: the first line.
0: Of the whole story? Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh my so then I guess
2: it's it really is showing that the, the dynamic of the relationship is made clear by through this dialogue, right, that the, the underlying conflict in them has come out. But then we don't know where it's going to go till we get to the next scene.
0: Yeah, I don't know, thinking about the the story as a whole. What did he call it? Land of the oh, I don't think I put the, Oh, it's at the bottom. Mm-hmm.
2: land of the living title of the story, Day Out
0: of Day. Of the story. Uh, oh, yeah, land of, the, of the living. Well, what I'm wrestling with is, is change within <laughs> uh, the story. You know, it, it's very repetition. She has a gripe about something that happened at home, his cell phone and a girl on the cell phone, right? He denies the whole thing like, you must be nuts. I don't know what you're talking about. And they continue that all the way through the story. So, if you're looking for a big change, you know, a resolution type change at the end of this, it's probably not that kind of story, (laughs) you know? Don't you agree or you Mm -hmm. think, I mean, he admitted nothing. In fact, he just left the cell phone at home. I don't know. I'm not, uh, I'm not convinced either way. And it doesn't really matter to me. Most of what I was trying to um, show is how well he does this recursive connection thing, which works in prose too, by the way. Have you figured that out? You know, the lines that you write kind of lead you to the next line. If you're writing lines that uh, go nowhere, it's probably because you've made a mistake before and you've broken the connection um, between the lines. The second line you write sort of is drawn out of the first line, and the third line out of the second line, and the fourth line out of the the previous one. You break that connection, you got to do it for an effect, like a change, If you do it by accident, the reader can slip through that hole. Let's do some nuts and bolts shit before we run out of time. (laughs) I I, I included uh, what I think is an interesting, I mean, I don't know uh, why. This is random now. You can direct this any way you want. Tags, I realize everyone has their own opinions about this. I would suggest that um, what I wrote on your handout, I think 90% of the time, he said, she said, will do. Mm -hmm. Also, burying your tags at natural pausing points is a nice idea, especially if you're one of those people that feels like said is overused. You know, said isn't overused. It's a piece of punctuation. Mm -hmm. It's like the period, common. Nobody bitches about those. <laughs> they're all over the place right <laughs> yeah. said is kind of like punctuation you know you know how you know that listen to anyone read I mean listen to those read all you know when people read they say huh. and they walk down the street and he said blah, dah, dah, blah, blah. and she said and the saids are kind of You'll hear any good reader slur the said into like uh, into nowhere land, you know It's stated, but it's often just it, it's demoted is what it is from the line. I'm not going to the fair, she said. Yeah. I'm not going with you, he said. So you know you th- maybe think of it that way and you'll realize your saids are fine uh. And burying the tags has an effect. Look at that ball line that i make making in ball. Yeah, I, I think I did. Yeah. You guys can put, you could play with this. Where are you going to put the tags here? Huh?
3: It, I think there's a couple of different places that you can put them depending on what kind of effect you want to oh. have. So did I. you put them,
0: I, you put tags anywhere? Where'd you put them?
3: I originally thought Ellie, she said, or you know whatever. I'm frustrated, and have that interruption to draw attention to Ellie. But you could also do it at the end of that line. Ellie, I'm frustrated. She said,
0: That's a, "Is that where the best interruption is? Because it will be an interruption." Ellie, mm-hmm. okay, I'm frustrated. He said. Yeah, but you see, the way I just did it, it it it, it reduced yeah, frustrated. Right. Is I'm frustrated. You put a he said on there. Yeah, weakens. Ellie, he said, I'm frustrated, maybe.
6: What about after that next
0: line? Or somewhere further down, you know, whatever you decide, you're, got, you're changing the meaning and the rhythm of the line. <laughs> I've been living a double life for years, he said. My life has been a series of bad decisions, he said. And now I'm trying to change, he said. <laughs> In America, in America, in America.
1: <laughs>
0: Maybe the guy talks too much, and that's the point. So you put in he said every minute, right? It could be. What's the point of where the tags are? You can bury tags that way, but yeah. where you put them changes the effect of what you're trying to say. Yeah. Uh, what about these descriptive tags people love? uh Beth avoided. most people will tell you, I think, there's a typo there, that's not C. Bloom ex- excerpt, I don't know why I <laughs> it's the Moore, uh, it's Laurie Moore's excerpt, not Bloom, on page seven where she uses descriptive tags to pretty good effect, I think, if you can go back to that for a minute, I'll show you what I mean, don't you think, the frog hospital bit? Uh, it's only three, I think, and, um, I mean, you decide. You should get a puppy, he says, sleepily. Sleepily is a clumsy-ass word, yeah. but there it is. Does it work? And for-
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, but you have to say, does it work in concert with what else is happening here? And the other one, further down, Daniel murmurs. Mm. And this, what's the end? He falls asleep while she's talking to him. Is that some justification for these descriptive tags? Yeah. Might be. <coughs>
1: hmm.
0: You know, and there's not a lot of alternatives to sleepily. Anyway, what are you going to say, drowsily? <laughs> <laughs> so you know, when you need this kind of thing, you use it. You know, but you need to have it in here in your work for a reason, right? And and all of it is, I think. You know, the big lesson is keep this stuff to a minimum. Some people don't want any tags at all. I think that's on your handout, too. That's from the open boat. You probably know this story. Uh, but this is like bliss. This is a, he uses no tags for the same reason that Catherine Mansfield uses no tags at the end of her story because we know these guys. They've been in the same lifeboat for the whole story. This is the end, almost the end. So what do we need a tag for? Right? Dialect is the same. Less is more. I and mean, uh, again, a lot of people have opinions about this. If you're going to start telling me, them, this is a good time to do it. <laughs> Especially since there's only five more minutes that I would have to listen to him.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I like. A good example, you want to hear a good example? Boys of my youth, Joanne Beard, you really, you probably know this, right? The old woman had white hair that stuck up in patches on her head. I couldn't get over that she slept in a crib, and I couldn't stop looking at her. My grandma called out to her before we left. Eva, she called. We brung Walter, your noodle ring. But it don't taste nothing like what you made. I didn't have pumpernickel, so I used white. The words of grown-ups rarely made sense to me. (laughs) Once she served me red raspberries, the grandmother served her, red raspberries that she put up, pour them in a plastic bowl and put cream on them. As I started to dig in, I noticed that there were some black things floating around. Grandma, there's bugs in this, I said. She came over, looked in my bowl, head tipped back to see out of the bottom of her glasses. Them are dad she says, just push them to the side, the berries is okay, and I did, and the berries were okay
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, I love both these people the, the kid is so is so well done, and the grandma is, is perfect dialect wise right you know, more would be too much you know, and notice that it's all diction and syntax there's hardly any of um, you know chopping off the end of words and putting an apostrophe in there. That's an important thing that I would urge if you know you're di- a lot of you write in dialect and you have to, you, you know, it calls your characters call for it. But work with the words and the order of words. Mm-hmm. Dialect is much better achieved through diction and syntax. And that's what Joanne Beard's doing with the grandma. Them are dead. We brung your noodle ring. (laughs) McCarthy's full of dialect, too, and, of course, he's the no-punctuation guy. You all probably know this, and there's a little example from No Country of Old Men. I mean, he doesn't even use, um, he doesn't even uh, punctuate his contractions, which is a little unusual. And then the only other thing I included on here is something that I know nothing about, which is dialogue in poems. I put them on because I figured some pro will tell me what in the hell the deal is with dialogue in poems. Um, while researching the topic, I found out there are r- real dialogue poems. And any of you that know anything about this, I urge you to speak now. Because I don't know anything about it. The only reason I put Philosophy Lesson on there by Levine is because that's my favorite poem that have dialogue in yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: so what does he do
6: with the dialogue?
0: But there's actually a category of poetry called dialogue poems, sure. mm. It's all the same
3: thing if you already it. Right like, right. the exact
1: same things exactly, have to be applied
3: in poems. Phil Levine does it all the time. There's this poem called, You Can Have It. And the yeah. only line of dialogue you get, you know, the poem is all about how he's had to work. It's midnight job and he comes home to his brother and he's complaining and the only thing he says, he never says I hate the job or I hate work or I'm working class, he just says, you can have it. Like while he's taking off his boots, you can have it. So all the kind of distillation that you've already talked about, the tension, ratcheting up, all of those things happen but in a much smaller frame, so they're mm-hmm. doing the same things that you've already broken down for us. You clarified that for me, so please. yeah. Yes,
6: <laughs>
0: I agree. That's ex- exactly what I hear in the poems. You know that yeah. I read poems, and uh, most of them are narrative. But that's what I hear in the Levine poem. And, and
6: the other, and the other point just to build on what you saying. Is this underlines what you're saying about people talk too much, yes. mm-hmm. and in a poem, it's it's amply evident when someone's talking too
0: much
6: (laughs) and Mm -hmm. so dialogue in poetry is is often really fair yeah Um, because it has to lift it has to do all of the lift.
0: except except in these dialogue poems they have um, sometimes there's an um, address to someone else either someone in the poem or some Right.
6: Right, and there's poems that borrow like the, from the, the. one on
0: there is addressing death. Sure. Yeah.
6: And there's poems that that borrow from the theater that are sort of dramatic monologues where it is, it's not really dialogue; it's monologue. Yeah. Where it's it's in voice, obviously. Persona poems often do that, where it's the voice of someone who is other than the poet, yeah. and they're speaking, and so it's it's to, to get at speech, mm. but it's not really back and forth between characters. Yeah.
0: Hmm. well what did I say that confused you at this point anything better. did I not give you enough time to ask questions about dial or tags and dialect and punctuation you're all right with that stuff uh, most of you are that's why I have reduced it to the back burner I mean, and as I said it is subject to opinion uh, and how you hear things you know the last little bit i put on here um is the word that i was trying to avoid saying in a dialogue class which is ear because most of us have been around school and writing classes long enough to hear somebody say you know you gotta have an ear for it, and it's kind of true you know some people are musical some people have a rhythm some don't Some people hear things and write it and it's the clumsiest crap ever. Some people just naturally do music when they talk or on the page. But it doesn't mean, you know, we can't um, learn to get better whichever category we fall in, whether dialogue comes natural to us or whether it's really hard for us to write dialogue. And I hope I gave you some, um, you know, pointers that, or at least things that would point you in the right direction as far as you know, studying um, the subject further. Hey, uh,
1: Can
2: I say one thing? Um, Mary Carol Hackett one time gave me this really nice, like, just how to punctuate dialogue. Mm-hmm. So it's so annoying to cover in a class, but like where the commas go, when you know when, when do you need the comma, what happens with the question mark, and so if anybody wants that, it's a really like little concise handout because those are the things that really annoy editors, I think, it makes you look sloppy, even though it's like not a big deal, it's not central to what yeah, you're saying, I, but. You I
0: know, think most of us try to do that with our undergrad students, right? Because uh, yeah, they don't know this stuff and we try to get them to do it. Anything else, Doug? I
6: would just recommend Myers' poem called "The Experts." The it experts. The experts by Jack Myers that has the just little scraps of dialogue that are central to what the poem does. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's it's about hearing and being heard and.
0: I'll remember uh, that. I'll, I'll remind it. me. Email poem. Yeah. Send me the whole poem, oh, then sure. I won't have to look. For it. Okay. <laughs> so Anything else, you guys? Yeah.
6: I just came here to find a non-feeling so attack came to mind with a lot of the uh, with a lot of the dialogue that we looked over. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and it, was, it was actually pretty instructive you, you, know, you saying um, take out the things that are boring or unnecessary because sometimes I feel like I still put in dialogue that it's just there to show something I could tell some other way.
0: Yeah, remember the... W- The words compression and energy. If nothing else, remember that. That's what's got to go into dialogue. Otherwise, no, nothing is happening. All right, thanks.